but right now I want to start right away. We're very fortunate uh, this afternoon to have uh, Eric Reinhardt in studio. He is the Lake County State's Attorney. Welcome to the show, Eric. Good afternoon, Karen. You know, I looked at the paper this morning, and the top story on the front page was all of the mass shootings, and it showed that the crime, you know, in Illinois is substantial. That over the last eleven years, um, we've had like four hundred ninety shootings, three hundred fifty-six people dead, over two thousand injured, and we're uh, we're accounted for ten percent of all mass shootings in the country, just our state alone. Uh, so the question is, you know, what are we doing about it, what's going on, and I know that Eric, uh, who is was elected in 2020, is a bright shining star in the prosecutor's office. Uh, he was the first Democratic person to hold the position in 40 years. Um, during his four years in office, he has very much distinguished himself as a leader uh, with an effort not only to bring justice to the victims of crime, but to try to take action to prevent it and doing it in a way that is smart and just. Uh, and I really watched you, Eric. I know you and I worked on a case. We were trying to figure out what it was before you were state's attorney, but I, I, maybe maybe we'll never figure that out. Uh, <laughs> but but it's been it's been really nice to watch you because I I respect what you're doing, and I know the uh, Highland Park shooting was a was a horrific thing that you had to endure during your course of um, in your office. And uh, although we're not going to talk about that because there is you know, obviously criminal charges still pending, I do want to talk about some of these issues. Sure, um, you know. There, I, let's. I want to talk about the father of the accused, and I know you brought you were spearheaded the bringing of charges against him for uh, reckless conduct. And I heard people say, "Well, why are you charging him? He's not responsible for the criminal actions of his son." Can you tell me what went into your prosecutorial head on? Why to charge him and how to charge him? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me on the show, Karen. Sure. Looking forward to talking about these issues. It's so important. Uh, as a father of two nine-year-old boys, uh, I couldn't be more invested in getting this right, not only for my family, for my neighbors, but you know, really for all of Lake County. When it comes to the father's case, we felt that uh, we worked very closely with the Highland Park Police Department and the Illinois State Police. This wasn't just our office. This was really a lot of law enforcement uh, layers, a lot of people with different experiences um, looking at what this father knew when he signed that sponsorship form to uh, say that his son should have a firearm. And based on what he knew, uh, for those of your listeners who know uh, the word reckless, he was aware of uh, facts that were risky. And there was a substantial risk that his son was going to hurt somebody. The challenge in the case, to be honest, is the time frame. He signed the, he signed the affidavit in late 2019. And as we know, the shooting didn't happen in Highland Park until 2022. It was that time period where we were going to have to show a judge or a jury, and eventually it was a judge, uh, that the father's actions caused uh, the damage that we saw in Highland Park on July 4th, 2022. We felt that the dad had the concrete knowledge, had the concrete information, even had some, frankly, some awareness, some things that he had said and texted that showed he knew his son was a danger. And when you put all of that together, uh, we felt that uh, felony charges were appropriate to, to be charged. And then eventually we, re- we reduced it to a misdemeanor uh, in order to get a negotiation. And do you think that was a result that you think is going to send a message? Because obviously, you know, you can't bring people back. You can't make injured people uninjured. But the idea that maybe a parent is not going to buy a gun or help a child buy a gun in the future who has mental illness issues, is this something that you think will deter? Yes. Uh, look, the 
we continue to I, I live in Highland Park. Uh, my my family could have gone to that parade that day. I've been to that parade myself. My my community, not only in Highland Park, but beyond. I talk to people from all parts of Lake County and all parts of Illinois who know about the terrible shooting on July 4th. We're all deeply impacted by it. And for a parent to know what they knew, what he, what he knew, not not that his son was moody, okay? Not that he played too many video games. I'm not implying that causes anything. I'm saying he had direct information uh, about his son's uh, interest in firearms, about statements that his son had made uh, about hurting about hurting other people. And so this wasn't like broad, you know, this wasn't, these weren't broad ideas. This was direct things about, about his son. And so um, with that information, with that information, we felt that uh, he should have done something different and, and that it was to the point of being criminal. We hope that other parents will just, just think about, about what they're doing. Um, I heard some, I heard some critics of the prosecution say, well, look, he passed a background check from the Illinois State Police. Um, that that implies that the Illinois State Police knew more than this father, okay? That that they knew more than the father who signed the form, and that wasn't true. The this father knew his son. I know that some parents, for lots of different reasons, may not know what their what their child is doing. The point of this prosecution was this father knew what he knew. We could prove what he knew because of, frankly cell phones and and emails the police being called to the house right i mean we had concrete information and so because of what he knew it was risky with what he did we hope that parents will think uh not only about um signing these forms and saying that they think that their their child should have a firearm but also in how they store their weapons uh how they assist how they assist uh anyone young in their life who you know how they assist people acquire the firearms uh and and certainly um you know we considered it it may have been appropriate to uh, have filed a child endangerment charge right if if there had been you know some type of knowledge that he was going to you know be hurting children Uh, it all depends on how closely in time these things are the the case in Michigan, the Crumleys, that's a very, very short period of time. So and, he's facing, so they're facing different charges. And, and I want to get to that because yeah. it's very interesting that you're here today when that trial is, is ongoing. Yeah. But I do want to uh, del- dive a little bit into that. I'm talking to Lake County State's Attorney Eric Reinhart here on WGN. He's in studio. We're going to be with him for a while. If you have any questions, give us a call, 312-981-7200. Back in a minute. We're here with the Lake County State's Attorney Eric Reinhart. You're up for election. Is it uh, November? Is that, is that when you're up for a re-election? Yes, uh, November 2024. It's been a quick four years and a busy four years for you. We were talking about mass shootings, and it's interesting that you're here because the Crumbly case, the uh, trial of the mother of the school shooter in Michigan who killed four people, uh, she's on trial for charges fairly similar to what uh, you brought against uh, the Highland Park suspect's father. Um, what have you? What is your understanding of those charges, and and how strong do you think the facts are? From what you see, obviously, we don't see everything in in the press. Yeah, I think that uh, what those parents did certainly warrants is the, warrants the involuntary uh, manslaughter charges that you see there. You have to think about time. In in the case of the Highland Park shooting, we had a father who signed the Floyd affidavit in 2019, saying it was appropriate for his son to have a firearm, and than the passage of two and a half years. So I I have received some questions about why reduce it to a misdemeanor. Well, we don't know what the judge was going to do. We we did have a judge. We didn't have a jury. We don't know what the judge was going to do. The judge had to find that the causation 
hadn't been broken in those two and a half years. Because he could have actually gone and gotten his own gun at a certain point. And he, that's, that's correct. He could, so, and he turned yeah. 21 during that time exactly. period. And so he would have been able to legally get his own gun. He, um, yeah, so he had his own, the own course of his life. Now, of course, I think he caused it. I think the father caused it, which is why we brought the charges. But to be able to get jail and to be able to put this man on probation, I think what we're telling people is you don't know what your son or daughter is going to do. He certainly wasn't banking and saying, well, you know, two and a half years, I'm not going to get in any trouble. As we see with the Crumleys, it could be a matter of hours. It could be a matter of days. At two and a half years, we established, in my opinion, the outer bounds of the criminal liability. I, I agree with you. It, it, it wasn't a slam dunk, is what you're saying. Well, and, and you right, and if, it had been a, and if it had been a few weeks, if it had been a few weeks, then, then maybe it moves up to a different charge. And with a few months, maybe it's somewhere else in the middle. With two and a half years... We were happy to get 60 days, even though I know that's not enough. That's not enough for the victims. That's not enough for me as the prosecutor. Right. But it made sure that we attached liability. It made sure that we made we made sure that 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 individual was continued to be monitored for two years. That we would continue to make sure he wasn't doing anything else that could hurt the community. So I think it was a good resolution. And the Crumbleys, I mean, without going into all the facts in the case, it, it, to me, it's just outrageous. I mean, this kid was hallucinating. He was drawing pictures of bloody bodies with a gun. The school told the parents, take him out, get him therapy. They were ignoring that. And they went out and bought him a gun when he was, what, 14 years old, which he brought to school in a backpack. And, and, and that's exactly the same. That's exactly the concrete information that we're talking about. And that's the thing that, that we think all parents should be looking at, all guardians should be looking at in terms of what they know. And then they are taking a risk because they don't want to maybe they don't want to they don't want to stand up to their kid. They don't want to say no. And that's incredibly risky. And in the case of the Crumleys and the Cremo father, it was criminal. So and I know this is a question that you would have no idea, but you probably sit and think about these things more than the average person. And we say this on the street and on the bus and in our law offices. What do you think the parents were really thinking about? Because it, it just seems like it defies logic that when you have a troubled person who is, you know, saying violent things or doing violent things that you go out and buy them a gun and then not lock it up and allow that child to have access. I mean, what, what do you think is going on here? Like, well, can you I, even speculate? I, I'm certainly, my answer does not have anything to do with the father's case because there no. is another, there's, his son is still on trial and I don't yes. want to get into too much details. I, I think generally speaking, some parents want to bond with the kid. Again, I'm not referring to the Highland Park case. They may want to bond with the kid. They may want to not say no. Um, they may want to put off a hard conversation, whatever it may be. We cannot have uh, people who are exhibiting dangerous behavior have firearms. That's why we have red flag laws. That's why we have fire restraining orders. That's why we have a fantastic Illinois State Police Department, which needs to get even more funding and more resources to do to do these background checks. Because I think people think background check and they think, oh, you're just putting something into a computer. We're talking about Illinois State Police um, employees reading these reports and understanding these reports from from police if they ever get a report of, a, of somebody exhibiting dangerous behavior. So it's real analytical work. It's not simply, you know, putting a name into a, in, into a computer when it comes to, to a background check. So there's a lot to do, and we need to make sure that, that people exhibiting dangerous behavior are not getting firearms. So 
Tell us a little bit about the red flag laws in Illinois, and what is your opinion on, um, are they, are, is, have you seen them working in action, or is it too early to, to kind of uh, see if they're, being, if they're effective? Yeah, I think they're effective. The, the studies show that, that they prevent a lot of, uh, a lot of bad, bad situations, a lot of bad outcomes. Can you describe for our listeners who may not know exactly what a lo- red flag law is? Yeah. What is the law in Illinois? Well, really, there's two types, there's really two types of, of red flag law. There's really two types of red flags I want to talk about. The first is the Illinois State Police doing these background checks, but they only do, don't only do background checks, Karen. If they get a report of somebody exhibiting dangerous behavior from a police officer, a school administrator, or even uh, qualified health care workers, if they get that report, they can go in and revoke a FOID. Now, that doesn't take guns out of the house, but it, but it does start the process of putting someone on a list of saying you're not allowed to legally have guns, you're not allowed to legally apply for a gun. You can be put on this list even if you haven't applied yet, then when your application comes in in two weeks or in two years, you're still on the list. That's one type. That's called the clear and present danger notification system. The other type of red flag law is probably what people are a little more familiar with are firearm restraining orders, where an individual can go in and tell a judge this person is exhibiting dangerous behavior. And there are, uh, by clear and convincing evidence, there are... That's there a high are, standard. That is a higher standard. Yeah. There are grounds to believe that this person will hurt himself or others. If, they, if their firearms are not removed. When the judge signs that order, the firearms can be removed from the house. But there's a hearing, and a judge can hear from the, from the other individual, the individual who is the target of the petition, and, and there can be a, a full hearing about whether they lose their firearms. And it's also temporary. It's for, it's for a, a finite period of time. So the law was passed recently that, um, that abolished, uh, that's, that banned uh, assault weapons in Illinois, and my understanding was recently um, uh, affirmed by our Illinois Supreme Court. Am I getting that right? Yes. And tell me what you think, obviously, that it's fairly new, but what do you think this is going to accomplish? Do you think this is actually going to change the way um, uh, did this, the, the crime rates and these mass shootings, do you think it's actually going to affect that? Look, the yes, the there was a bipartisan, there was a federal assault weapon ban for ten years that was signed by uh, Republican and Democratic members of Congress. Uh, it was a it was a long it feels like a long time ago, doesn't yeah, it, Karen? Yes, when when no. when our when when our two parties were cooperating <laughs> in that way, uh, President Bill Clinton uh, signed that bill, and for ten years we had a federal assault weapon ban, and deaths went down. Deaths went down during that time period from from assault weapons or from from these mass shootings. Of course, it makes us all safer. I really want to emphasize this. The mass shooters that are, unfortunately are in our headlines, whether it's Uvalde, Vegas, Buffalo, Newtown, uh, the, the, the Sandy Hook, the Sandy Hook shooting, the Parkland High School. I, I, I checked all of this. They were all assault weapons that were bought legally. Those, those men, those young men, they didn't have to Go in, they didn't have to take a step of buying it illegally. You know, the response is always, well, they will buy it illegally. Well, it didn't happen in any of those cases, and I've never heard the NRA or anyone else respond to that point, that those young, disturbed men all legally went and got the, got the, got the firearms that led to so much death and destruction. Of course we should take this step. Of course, we should, of course we should ban these. It was done before. It made us safer. It's going to make us safer again. I called for the assault weapon ban. Standing in the street... Uh, where the Highland Park shooting had happened on, on July 6th. And I'm very proud of the state legislature and the governor for, uh, for getting that done. Your office has been vocal about 
early childhood crime prevention education. And, you know, I know that the state's attorneys have traditionally been, you know, prosecute, lock them up long as you possible, get them off the street, which is part of your job. It's part of your job to keep dangerous people off the street. But another part of your job, and I've seen more prosecutors doing this, and we've all seen it, is sort of a more holistic approach to crime prevention, which is what is causing all of these mass shootings. We just had a shooting like two blocks away from my law office in the middle of the day at noon on like a Thursday or something. And it was kids coming out of their high school and some car going by and ambushing them with 20 rounds of shots, killing two kids, like in the middle of the day. You know, is this like vendettas, personal vendettas? Is this gang related? What is it? So my question is, what, you know, what do we do to prevent it? And what are initiatives does your office take in that regard? We certainly, we certainly have to do a variety of things at the same time. Uh, certainly, we have to hold shooters accountable. And we have to have a, a clearance rate. I'm very proud of the clearance rate in Lake County. I'm very proud of the police that we, I work with on a daily basis. They are heroes as they, as they run towards, literally run towards the danger in many cases. That's not my quote. I believe that's a Chicago uh, police commander's quote about running towards the danger. We have to continue to support our police, and they are getting better and better technology uh, to, to find shooters and hold them accountable. But many times when it comes to, to the crime, that's the end of the story. And the, the, the job of the prevention work, and I'm very proud of our gun violence prevention initiative uh, in Lake County, which we started in 2022 from federal, state, and local funding, is that we need to engage in prevention work. And we need to find kids who are at risk and saturate them with services earlier. And that's not – I'm not talking about people who have already done the shooting. Unfortunately, that those individuals are going to be incarcerated when they're caught. They're going to be incarcerated, and they're going to be incarcerated for a long time. And that's what we do in Lake County. But what as we move down the pyramid, right, as we move down deeper into the risk factors – I think that a prosecutor's office is uniquely situated to identify those risk factors, to identify some of those people, and to really pull the community together to engage in this this prevention work. In Lake County, uh, we have 43 police agencies. We have 43 mayors, and they all do an amazing job, but they're working in their individual areas. And uh, the, one of the reasons why we wanted to do this in a prosecutor's office was because violence doesn't know municipal boundaries, right? right. We have to have a we have to have a sort of centralizing location of prevention work, of policy, of, uh, of grant funding or receiving of grant funding. And I'm really proud. We've received over $4 million, Karen, to engage in this prevention work. But we're also upgrading our technology. We also built a violent crime unit uh, that only focuses on, on murders and, and shootings. We can do all of these things at the same time and, and talk about the fact that gun violence is driven by trauma. It is driven by other gun violence. It, the, talking about it as a public health issue, I think, is very, very helpful, right? It's driven by trauma. It's driven by other gun violence. It's driven by uh, by so many communities being underserved, and whether it's education, housing, health care. All of these disparities drive trauma and gun violence, and it's not something that's seen in other countries in the world, and so we have to have innovative solutions. And and I agree. We're going to have to take a break, but I, I I dislike when I hear people say, "Oh, you're coddling to those people." Which you're not. You're not coddling. You're trying to prevent. You're trying to get in between something that went wrong when kids are very very young, or they don't have all the resources that they need, and prevent them from doing what we're seeing now. Exactly. We're talking to uh, Eric Reinhardt, the Lake County State's Attorney. When we come back, we're going to be talking a little bit more about some of his other initiatives on the Karen County Show and WGM. Welcome back to the Karen County Show. We're here with Lake County State's Attorney 
Eric Reinhardt, who's in studio. And, you know, you're running for re-election. I've been watching you. You've been doing a great job up there in Lake County. You've got a very diverse group of uh, municipalities, and uh, and you've got a variety of issues, as most prosecutors do. Let's talk, can I just talk a little bit about Eric the person? Because I think when you're talking about a person in a position like yours, where you're trying to prevent crime, you're trying to prosecute crime, you're trying to do the right thing for the people in your community of all walks of life. Like, What is your background? Tell us a little bit about yourself and why you think your background sort of led you to what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I grew up in downstate Illinois near Danville and uh, went, to a small, went to a small high school and eventually went to Knox College. Uh, and went to the University of Chicago Law School. I worked downtown in a law firm for a couple years. Great experience there. Attention to detail, writing, exactly. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did the same thing. Uh, um, and it was fantastic. Couldn't and, wait to get out of it, right? And then, <laughs> well, I wasn't getting in the courtroom enough. So amazing, right. amazing people there. But I needed that experience of uh, needed that experience of being in the courtroom. So I actually went to the public defender's office and did that for about seven years, and then started my own practice where I still did criminal defense, but I also worked on administrative hearings and I got into appeals and eventually I appeared in the Illinois Supreme Court. I was very proud to do that representing a teacher. And um, did I mention I was the son of two teachers? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you did. And now I did, yeah. So as the son of two teachers and, uh, you know, really understanding how important education was and how important uh, all of these formative things that we do do for people early on, as you mentioned, Karen, about early childhood education and, and prevention. And so when you sit for so long with um, people who are charged with crimes, you, you begin to see a lot of these root causes and you begin to understand what they have been through and the, and the trauma in their lives and that we really can, as a society, make different and better decisions in investing in people earlier. And that if we do that, and frankly, if we have a prosecutor who's willing to talk about that and and to push legislators to do things and to just openly talk about the policies we need to reduce crime, then I think we're going to have a safer we're going to have a safer society. And, and I think that's my job. I, I think my job is to talk about the things that we can do to reduce crime. We are also, of course, going to prosecute people. And and none of these things, as you said, uh, that it's not we're not coddling people by talking about prevention. Frankly, there's a five hundred one c three, a nonprofit bipartisan group called Fight Crime Invest Kids. It's got Republicans and Democrats, and has had uh, states attorneys working with them, and has had those states attorneys for years and has police chiefs for years. I have found that the police leaders in, in Lake County talk a great deal about prevention. So I think we're getting, I think we're really having a great, a, a great moment when it comes to addressing root causes in Lake County and all of us moving together, the health department, the Lake County board to, to, to address these topics. And I think some of those perspectives are one as the son of two teachers and two as somebody uh, who sat uh, with so many people who who had made mistakes and who themselves, frankly, had been victims of crime, that more than ever I have learned that if we do not end the victimization of crime, then we're not going to be able to reduce crime. And so we have to, we have to be able to do that. It's just wonderfully said. Um, let's talk about no cash bail, because this is something that I think needs to be explained. And you're very articulate when it comes to this. But I want to ask you the question, what is the difference now? We now have no cash bail. I would like you to just walk us through if a defendant comes into the courtroom having allegedly committed a crime, being accused, uh, what are the options that the judge has and what are the options that the judge does not have? Well, I'm, let's take a typical case. Let's, okay. take a, let's take a 19-year-old who possesses a gun. Okay. In Lake County, I can't speak for Cook, in Lake County prior to the Safety Act, 
that bail would be set at twenty-five dollars to $50,000, which means they needed twenty-five dollars to $5,000 $5, to get out. That was the typical amount for a, for a kid with a, an illegal gun. Um, almost all of those people posted bond. Almost all of those people posted bond. They can find a friend, a family member, frankly, Karen, a fellow gang member who has right. that money. Now, and then, they, and then they post that bond, and then they go to court for 18 months, and justice, whether it's in the form of probation or prison, comes 18 months later. And for a 19-year-old kid, that's not a lot of, that, that feels very far off, right? Now, we can end the revolving door of, of gun crimes if a person comes in and they are charged with an illegal gun offense, then right now, a judge decides between release or detention. It's not expressed in terms of cash. The judge, at least in Lake County, we are primarily filing petitions to detain those individuals so that we can understand exactly what we need to do, and they are kept in the jail until we resolve the case. That is not how it was prior to the Safety Act. Money was being used, and people were getting out. The other option that a judge has is to put somebody on conditions. So you can't go back to the place, this place or that place. Um, you can't stay out past midnight. You can't have alcohol. You can't have drugs. Those are called conditions. All cases can have conditions put on them uh, if, the, if the judge is going to release the individual. If they're detained, they're in the jail until the case is, until the case is resolved. So if you really think about it, and I predicted this, but you're going to have to tell me if this is true. I predicted that when this new uh, regime came into place, that more judges were going to detain these defendants pretrial because they, there was no option to say, you know, give us money and then you can go your merry way. That it's it, in a, out of abundance of caution that they're going to detain more people. Is that do, I, maybe you don't know the stats on that, but is that happening? Yes, we're seeing more we're seeing more individuals charged with gun crimes and domestic violence and, and other violent violent crimes detained. Now, there is an entire category, this entire category of offenses where there cannot be detention. But those are nonviolent offenses. Those are retail thefts. And so what the Illinois Supreme Court said in April of 2020, and that date is important because some people think this, I've got to be honest, some people think this reform is some reaction to the murder of George Floyd, which happened in May of 2020. That's okay. why the state's important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In April of 2020, the Supreme Court task force with prosecutors and police and everybody on the task force said, come up with a system that, that releases nonviolent offenders and gives them rules. Hold dangerous offenders. And that's what, the, that's what the Safety Act is. We still hold people. It's just a question of who we are holding. And why are we holding people who a judge doesn't think is dangerous? In other words, and why are we releasing people who a judge does think is dangerous just because they have cash? This is a very good system. This is a system that makes us safer. It is a system that has been advocated for by every major victims group in Illinois because it lets a judge hold dangerous offenders while we await for trial. Karen, holding, you've probably talked about this in other shows, holding somebody who is still presumed innocent in a jail is one of the toughest questions in our system. And we have been struggling with that system for that question for hundreds sure. of years. You are presumed innocent, and yet we are holding you. Or we are not holding you, but how do you sort all that out? However hard it is, that question about whether to hold somebody while they are also presumed innocent, the answer cannot be whoever has the bigger bank account. That can't be the answer. Well, if you have a 401k you can cash out to post bond, then you're released. Oh, you don't have a 401k, sir? You're going to be held. 
That cannot be the answer, and that's why I was for bail reform. We cannot, I cannot explain that uh, to my children when they get a little bit older. Uh, I couldn't explain to them that rich people get out and poor people stay in. There have been a lot of lies about the Safety Act. There were a oh, lot of lies about yes. the Safety Act, Karen, and it upsets me because it, it re-victimized people. It made people scared, and some people said that at midnight on whatever date it went effective that the doors were going to open, and it was terrible that they did that. So before we take another break, I, I want to ask you, like, you've been on both sides of this as a prosecutor and a public defender. What does a judge do to assess somebody's dangerous tendencies in making that decision as to whether to detain? What are the factors that, that the judge is going to look at? Yeah, great question. So they're certainly able to look at some of the things that were happening during the offense itself, right? Was there a threat to kill somebody even if they didn't kill somebody? Um, what was the offense itself? Was it a, a sex case? Is it a gun case? Is it a violent case? And then, of course, what is in their background? What have they shown? What have they shown in the past? Um, what other things have they done to maybe evade justice? What have they said on social media? Like the judge can look at all these things. And Karen, instead of like a, a one to two minute bail hearing where a judge is setting a cash value and then forgetting about the case, we're having 20 to 30 to 45 minute hearings about whether to hold this person. And that's exactly how it should be because yes. that person might be losing their, their freedom for a few months. And that's good. That, 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 that's good in that the judge is taking time to make that decision. But I got to tell you, when the judge was just setting a cash value because the judge was thinking about the case he or she set the day before or what their colleagues set the cash numbers on, it becomes too close to a market and to – it's like real estate. What's a two-bedroom worth and what's a two-bedroom <laughs> oh worth in – what's a two-bedroom worth in, in uh, Lincolnshire, you know? Yeah. And so you just, you just set it along with the other cases instead of doing a real analysis as to whether somebody's dangerous. It's a, it's, a, it's a good reform. I think that's a really good explanation. When we come back, we have a texter who wants to know why retail theft is so out of control, and I'm sure you're going to have a wonderful answer to that, Eric. We're here with uh, Eric Reinhardt, who is the Lake County State's attorney here on WGN. Welcome back. We're here with Eric Reinhardt, Lake County State's Attorney, and we're talking about no cash bail at this point. But uh, why is retail theft so out of control, says a texter from the 630. And you said that retail theft is not something uh, that you can be detained for. Can, not, can you address probably both of those issues? Sure, not right away. Uh, so your, your very first retail theft that, that you commit... Um, instead of a judge setting a cash bond and, and issues of class uh, and and uh, socioeconomics coming in and a judge not, not knowing whether you have the cash or not and to some extent not caring, right? Because the judge says, well, this is the amount of cash that we've always done. And then you had people unintentionally being held. Um, that's not the system anymore. Now, you know, and basically, you get one chance to follow the rules. And, and one thing we didn't talk too much about, and we could talk about the Safety Act for hours, is that even when people aren't detained they are put rules are put on them so the second that person commits a new offense regardless of whether it's a second retail theft or a murder that person can be held so you're, you you can't be held on your second offense and you can be held if you go back to the walmart right you retail thefted from a walmart you stole from a walmart and if you go back to the walmart you're going to go back in so any condition any violations of the rules you go back in or okay. the, the judge can order you back in that's that's one answer the other thing i heard about retail theft in the safety act real quick was well retail um retail thieves can't be arrested. They can't be handcuffed. Of course they can. Anybody who commits a crime uh, in Illinois before and after the Safety Act can be handcuffed by a police officer and put into jail and put into, you know, put into a, a police station until they see a judge. Some offenses, retail thefts, some other nonviolent offenses, you're not held while you wait for your trial, but you can be handcuffed, searched, processed, and put in the, uh, you know, and put in and put in the police station for retail theft. Why it's on the increase? I think first of all, I've seen some studies that say it's on the decrease, but I know it's kind of an increasing concern. Um, 
and I think it's because we're seeing it so much more often. I support the attorney general's. Uh, I support the attorney general's uh, law and, and uh, task force that he has formed, which is to attack organized retail theft. And those organized retail theft rings actually are detainable. Uh, if there is a concern about somebody being a, a danger to somebody, you can actually, if somebody is a danger and they are committing that organized retail theft, they can be held. If somebody is a committing that organized retail theft and they are a threat to flee, they can be held. So many people can be held on a retail theft, but judges have to make explicit findings regarding either a flight risk or a danger. So this is, this is a, sounds like a silly question. Why are they called state's attorneys if they are associated with counties? I love it. I, <laughs> have you, you answered that Karen, question? Karen, my wife might have texted that in because we literally were talking about that today because we were talking to my sons about it. Uh, they should be called county attorneys. Yeah, uh, that's, that's My funny. mother, occasionally, she'll hate me for saying this, my mother still tells her friends it's the district attorney position because we all watch TV in New right. York and California. It's right. called the district attorney, as you know. Uh, yes, it's essentially the county prosecutor. That's and we have a, 102 elected county prosecutors. Interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, this week marks the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, which, as we know, was stricken down in 2022. And although Illinois is a, a state that really has done a lot of legislation to protect women uh, and to protect their right to choose, um, there have been states, as you know, that have been really passing some draconian laws about even if you help someone or drive them to an abortion, that you are criminally responsible and, and some of those types of things. What uh, what have you done to to protect a woman's right to choose. Well, certainly this is really important to me. I think it's going to be I think it's going to be important in the next election. I think it's going I to be, too. I think it's going to be important for a while after Roe was struck down in a case called Dobbs, the issue sort of returned to the states. And then not only does the issue return to the states, it sort of begins to return to county and city prosecutors, right? And we're seeing some really alarming stories in Texas and I think Ohio. Yeah. There was a, a, a young woman prosecuted for her reproductive decisions for the decisions that she should make between her and her doctor. So I stand unequivocally for a woman's right to choose. I stand unequivocally for women being able to make their own choices for their own health reasons, for their own privacy reasons, for their own reproductive purposes. I think this issue is going to really, really, really be important going forward because we are going to have people traveling across state lines who to get an abortion or they're going to have a doctor traveling. We have telehealth now. We have uh, obviously drugs that can be involved in in the process. And so we have to have prosecutors who say what they feel about this issue. I've just said how I feel about it. And I will not cooperate with other out-of-state law enforcement agencies who want to bring women back to that state uh, to be prosecuted uh, for this. So we have to think intelligently about uh, information, uh, we want to protect people's right to privacy. We have to think about uh, cell phone data, and we have to think about license plate data, and make sure that we are not helping other states, um, other states invade what I think is a, a human right to, to make these uh, to make these choices. And is that something that states' attorneys around the state are doing? Are, are are talking about? Is this something? Do you get together with the other states' attorneys to some extent, or is there a sort of a north south division here? No, no. I, I work. Uh, no, I work very closely with other with other states' attorneys, uh, particularly on um, actually a little bit on these organized retail theft cases uh, because they do cross county lines so much. And I'm proud to work with uh, my other states' attorneys of all of all backgrounds when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, downstate or uh, other suburban states attorneys and frankly all partisan backgrounds we're all very very we're all very closely united you know we're, there's more that there's more that unites us than 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 the differences that we talk about but having said that 
I am a state's attorney who believes that I, I should say what the office what the office thinks, what I believe about anything from the assault weapon ban to, to a woman's right to choose. And as these issues do move to a county level more and more, as they move uh, out of the federal out of the federal right. out of the federal environment and into these local environments, I think that prosecutors have to say how they feel. I will be honest, we have not talked a lot about this topic. We've talked about a lot of other topics, and, and we are very collaborative on, on many, uh, many issues. I think this will be a sort of a decision for an individual state's attorney on a county-by-county by county basis. But I think it's important to, it's important to say how we feel so that, uh, so that people can, so that, frankly, voters can make the right decision about, about what state's attorney they want. How important do you think it is that state's attorneys are elected? Because I do hear, not so much with the attorneys, but but with the public, like why is our state's attorney, why is, can't like the mayor or, or, or some someone be appoint, appoint them? I and mean, is it important, do you think, to have the people be able to elect the person that stands for what they believe? Or is it something that that should be less political? Because you're out there, you've got a campaign. You've got a campaign to win your job. And, you know, is your job a political job? I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a job of values, right? And um, the political parties reflect our values. Uh, I'm I'm proud of the political party that I'm in. I'm proud to be a Democrat. I'm proud that that we stand for a woman's right to choose. I'm proud that we stand for reasonable gun regulations. I'm I'm proud that we stand for addressing deep issues in our society, and that we are not the other that, that we're not the other party, frankly. Um, that I think has gotten distracted, particularly in the last you know, particularly in the last several years from addressing the problems that affect the community. Of course, we should be elected. Of course, I should have to explain the decisions that I make. Of course, I should have to explain the policies and, and the things that I the things that I stand for. That's what a democracy is. And those lead to tough conversations, but that's what accountability is. And I'm happy to I'm happy to have to talk to people about these because I think solving crime has to be addressed in the context of values. It has to be addressed in the context of where we put our money. We've started a human trafficking task force to fight human trafficking because that's something I believe in. That's when we won that grant, that was a priority decision that I made. Of course, we should judge our state's attorneys on 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 what priorities they make and how they make their budgetary decisions and what they say is important. And if you don't agree with the state's attorney, then then you can run somebody else against them. But I think that there's nothing more important than our children's safety. And why wouldn't we put those people under the scrutiny of the electoral system? You mentioned human trafficking, and, and we don't have a whole lot of time. But can you tell us how does? I mean, we all think to ourselves like, uh, yeah, there was something in the paper today where I think it was two uh, women were actually convicted of human trafficking in one of our suburbs. And you just don't, you know, making these women, uh, young women, I think they were from Africa, uh, take these jobs and threatening them and taking away their passports yeah. is kind of the same thing all the time. How how? How uh, common is this, and, and how does it usually play itself out? What's the common scenario with human trafficking? Well, it's very common, and, and I and I appreciate that you started with a labor trafficking example because so many people think of sex trafficking. Yes, and, and both are both are t- both are terrible. But we don't want to we don't want to neglect how serious labor trafficking is because everybody thinks about sex trafficking. We need we need to be working with the, the survivors of crimes. All of the things that I've talked about today are so that we have less crime and so that we address the needs of the victims. And I'm very proud of how the office has expanded our victim services. And by working with victims, we gain their trust, we get them the services they need, and then hopefully they will turn on their trafficker, whether it's a labor trafficker or whether it's a sex trafficker. But the basic way that it works is you have to have that relationship in a domestic violence shelter or in a in a community organization that's that's looking for exploited individuals uh, on the labor side you have to have those sort of uh, organic and community connections and then you work with the survivor and you work 
uh, you work up to get the bad guy. And trafficking is one of the most planned out crimes, and that's why it's going to get some of the most, in my opinion, it deserves some of the longest prison sentences because it is such a planned out and exploitative crime, and it reduces somebody to, to something else. It reduces them to, to a dollar sign, and that's, uh, that's abhorrent, and that's why those people will get long sentences. And very quickly, um, are you seeing an uptick in hate crimes? And yes. hate speech and, and some of that stuff. And we've got just a couple minutes. Yes. Can you just tell us a little bit about what your office does with this, what what the uptick is that you've seen? Yeah, unfortunately, we have filed more uh, hate crimes in the last three years than we did in the 10 years before. I think some of that is uh, uh, law enforcement seeing more of it or, or being better trained to, to detect it. I, I really, really uh, uh, love my law enforcement partners in Lake County because they're also very attuned to this issue. Uh, one internal one internal policy we made in the office when I came in was that uh, a supervisor has to make the decision about a hate crime uh, in terms of charging it and, and what goes next because they are they are so devastating to the community. I was personally involved in uh, some of the decision making around uh, a gay pride flag being uh, torn down at a CLC uh, at one of our community colleges and then and then employees being battered in that moment. And so we charged that as a hate crime. There were swastikas that were put up recently in Round Lake Beach. We charged right. that as a hate crime. And so we unfortunately are seeing more of these, and I'm really proud to continue to work with law enforcement to investigate them properly and to get into the social media, which shows the intent of some of these people. Right. And we're, we're investing more and more into being able to uh, uh, research people's social media and their phones. So, thank goodness for social media and stupidity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? It Eric, tells us a lot. It does, doesn't it? Uh, Eric Reinhardt, thank you so much. Uh, the Lake County State's Attorney, thank you for joining me here on WGN. And you are up for re-election in November. And uh, good luck to you. Thank you very much, Karen. All right. Thanks for your time.